Welcome to This Is Not About Your Body, where we talk about all the real shit body image issues are actually about because they're never just about the way you look. I am your host, Jesse Nealon, and today I have with me Heidi Anderson, who is a body-centered psychotherapist and founder of Reclaiming Beauty, which is an inclusive and health at every size aligned business here in Asheville, North Carolina, that offers trauma-informed psychotherapy and embodiment coaching for individuals looking to find lasting healing from disordered eating, eating disorders, and negative body image. We happened to meet at a local networking event a little while back and connected over how deeply aligned our approach to this work is. So I'm really excited to have her here for a conversation. So welcome, Heidi. Yes, thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you, Jesse. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to have you just start by telling us all a little bit about the work you do and how you came to start Reclaiming Beauty. Yeah. So Reclaiming Beauty is a small group uh, psychotherapy practice here in Asheville. And um, it just kind of evolved around uh, my way of working with folks with eating disorders and body image which is a little bit different than the typical way that people do this work. Um, our, our work is kind of bringing in more of like a body-centered, somatic bottom-up way of um, approaching. My thought has been, how do we change our relationship with our body if we're not actually getting in the body to do that? So but embodiment feels like a really important part of the process. Yeah. Um, Can you just yeah. give a little definition of a somatic body-based approach to this work? What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, exactly? yeah. So, so we are really interested in, um, you know, what is the body saying about a person's relationship with food? Mm -hmm. um, and we listen to the body through the lens of the nervous system. So the language of the body is both sensory and also the nervous system. And so we're trying to help folks um, rather than think through feeling better about their body or having a better relationship with their food, embody an experience of um, coming into their body and whatever, whatever, I mean, it can be really scary to come into the body. Yeah. So doing that in a gentle way. Yeah. Love that. Uh, what have you seen in the difference in this approach, like compared to a program or a therapy where people are trying to mostly work on mindset or like change their thoughts about body image or food? compared to what you're doing? Yeah, so that's where the kind of top-down, bottom-up metaphor I think is really interesting. So top-down, right, it's gonna be changing the thoughts, but but the root doesn't necessarily get looked at and addressed. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, what I find is that more, more transformation can happen that feels more lasting, right? I think with folks with eating disorders, disordered eating, body image, it can feel like something that goes on and on and on. And part of the reason I think, well, there's lots of reasons for that. <laughs> but one of the reasons for me and my experience is that the body isn't really brought into the conversation because it's more like, how do you think about your body rather than what is your body saying about your, yeah. your lived experience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So I'm going to have you tell us about the book you wrote, Reclaiming Beauty. What is it about and what led you to wrote, write it? Yeah. So uh, Reclaiming Beauty is about um, helping people kind of shift their relationship with their bodies from a self-critical place to a more self-compassionate place. And I, um, I'm a big fan of wisdom decks and imagery and symbols. And so I worked with a friend of mine um, from California. Her name is Leah Joy, and she created art around these different concepts that I kind of felt like were the themes that I saw with folks with body image issues. Mm -hmm. And um, and I liked the language of reclaiming beauty when I when I first created that, someone said to me, Heidi, you can't use beauty. That's such a charged word. And I was like, mm. well, that's exactly why I want to use that word mm -hmm. because I feel like our understanding of beauty, like the, the authenticity of who we are, that that's what makes us beautiful. It's not the societal messages around what we're supposed to look like. And so yeah. really wanting to lead people through a process of um, reclaiming that. And I like that word reclaiming and doing it with something that's tangible and that you can grasp onto. Um, so that's where the cards come in. So I kind of broke up the cards. There's 50 cards. I wrote like, you know, 250 words about each of them really as an offering a jumping off point for people, not like this is the expert thought on this card, right. but here's what I think about this card. What do you think about this yeah. card? Yeah. yeah. Love that. 
And I know you've gone on like a whole ass journey since writing this book and creating those cards and that your ideas have changed, your ideas have evolved. So I'm curious what it's like for you to reflect on what you created now and what has changed for you since. Yeah. I mean, as you know, writing a book and putting a book out into the world is such a like intense process. And it's really interesting for me because my book came out 10 years ago. And mm -hmm. in the last 10 years, like the layers of understanding around what creates challenges with body image have just gotten more and more yeah. deep for me. So the book doesn't really include anything about health at every size, which was um, kind of my first dive into some new information. And then mm -hmm. it doesn't include a lot about embodiment, which is then mm -hmm. my second dive. And then um, the last couple of years, I have really gotten into um, trying to understand the context of what makes people vulnerable around um, you know, all the liberatory frameworks and the, the different isms that create this um, focus on our bodies as a place where we're trying to access power and privilege. So mm -hmm. my book, which I still think is a beautiful offering, yeah. doesn't have a lot of these different layers. And then also I wrote it. So I was, I was getting divorced. I was writing on the weekends when my son was off with his dad. Like I was writing as if my life depended on it because it <laughs> at the moment. Yeah. Um, and and I wrote it from the perspective of you know my my identities, which is like a cisgender, um, middle aged, white woman who at the time was straight sized, um, mm. but had been small fat and then straight sized. So with lots and lots of privilege. Um, so it was kind of an interesting thing to kind of look back as like the images are not super they don't have a lot of representation mm -hmm. to them, like not even of size. Huh. Um, so I don't like to kind of promote the book as much now because I feel like it's missing. Representation is so important. Um, although sometimes people are like, Heidi, you should do an expansion pack. <laughs> oh, yeah. There needs to be more people of color. There needs to be more yeah. gender, gender identities. Um, more ages, more people of size, different mm -hmm. varieties. So that's, I think, what would represent the full picture of what I was trying to convey with Reclaiming Beauty. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what influenced these changes to you. Like what led you down the path to the liberation frameworks and that kind of understanding of the role that uh, power and privilege play in body image? Yeah. So I was, um, I was, trying to put my ideas together in a way that my professional organization would be like, yay, this is so exciting and we want you to present. And so I kept submitting um, proposals. And finally, in 2020, I finally had the proposal that I was like, this is it. And in that proposal, I'm talking about um, beauty, image, and embodiment. So mm -hmm. talking about um, beauty from the lens of, like, literally, it was just one line, like, we can be impacted by sizeism and racism. And like, it was uh -huh. one line <laughs> in one slide. Um, and, and, and then a bunch about the embodiment and then about how people can work with images. And this was presentation was accepted and I was so excited about it. And then, you know, it was 2020. So it went from an in-person presentation to an online. And the day that I was supposed to record my presentation, I was, um, it was the week that George Floyd was murdered. And mm. I was so distraught. I mean, I know that a lot of people woke up and then went back to sleep, but that woke mm. me up. And I feel like it kind of put me on a journey of really trying to understand like this one slide where I'm talking about racism and sexism and mm. is actually such a bigger crux of people's challenges with embodiment. And so that kind of led me on a journey. I I eventually did do the presentation and there was a person of color that was like, yeah, this is all good, but not, you know, only for white people. And that was like, okay. Oh yeah. So, yeah. And I'm so grateful for that person. So yeah. that led me on some consultation and like trying to find out like who's talking about these things. And there's so many people that are. Talking yeah. About yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Okay. So that has to have been like, I also feel so grateful for that person for speaking up because of course they didn't need to, right? They could have just left and been like, yeah, like, all right. Um, <laughs> but that has to have been such a, an intense moment for you. I think maybe you had already started to have the inkling that that was going to be the case, but how did that feel? 
that first moment? Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt it, it was painful in a way where it's like by not including something, you're causing harm. And and it's mm. whole that it's that whole intention versus impact, right? Like mm -hmm. I had no intention in causing harm. In fact, I thought my ideas were kind of brilliant. <laughs> sure. It's just that it was coming from this, you know, it was coming from my my lens. Right. And when we're talking about like body image issues and, and eating disorders, frankly, like the all of the isms that are layered around it is really important. And if you don't have mm -hmm. that context, that's another thing that makes it so healing doesn't ever truly happen because right. the big picture isn't being named. So, I mean, I felt a lot of shame in that moment and it was shame that didn't collapse me. It was shame that really mobilized me around like, okay, how do I get yeah. in better alignment? How do I, where do I, where do I reach for learning? Where, who, who knows this information because it feels really important to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that leads me directly into one of the coolest things about our conversation when we first met up was hearing about how you are leaving one of your credentials that the credentialing board to be a certified eating disorder specialist is something yes. that you are going to actually leave because they yeah. haven't spoken out about the new guidelines for kids to lose weight. So uh, right. first of all, I just think this is so powerful for people to hear about because most people think of these credentialing boards as like neutral and objective and all of that kind of thing. So um, can you tell me a little bit more about your decision to leave um, and also about the those guidelines that they haven't spoken out about? Yeah, so um, in, in January, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics um, put out a statement that in their opinion, they felt like it was safe to offer weight loss surgery and weight loss medications to kids age 12 and older. Now I have been working in the field of eating disorders for the last almost 20 years. And to me, that was horrifying yeah. because it's basically, it's basically telling kids, Hey, you, you are in a body that has judgment. Um, instead of us changing the fact that that's kind of messed up, that the world's judging you, yeah. you have to change. Right. Yeah. So, and I also know because most of my clients have some story from around that age where they're yes. told something about their body. And then that mm -hmm. leads them on a journey of eating disorders, you know, all of the, all of the challenges. So, um, to me, I'm like this, I was sort of waiting for them to say something and, and some yeah. different organizations were saying something. And actually there are some like formal um, eating disorder organizations that have spoken out about the guidelines. Mm. And so I'm kind of curious about looking more into those places, but yeah. the one that I have been associated with, um, it, they haven't. And um, one of my mentors said to me, actually around the time that I was trying to get my presentation out into the professional world, she's like, Heidi, you gotta be curious about who your professional attachment figures are. And I think this Ooh. experience made me realize like, I'm actually not in alignment with this professional organization as an attachment figure. Like this is such an important, yeah. um, it's such an important time to be speaking out against these, these things. And honestly, not speaking out makes me like, what are the, what's the benefit? What are they getting out of not yeah. speaking out? And then, I mean, I'm not like, I don't know. I, I don't get super um, conspiracy theory, but part sure. of it is like something doesn't feel right in my gut around yeah. it. And, you know, this past year, I have been deep dived in with the work of the Center for Body Trust. So Hillary and Dana are these two um, women in Portland, Oregon, that have created this whole organization that's bringing together different people of different abilities, intersections, um, talking about body image and eating disorders from the lens of all these different lived experiences. So I've been like, because I had a place where I know this is, this is feels yeah. like where I belong. It's was easier for me to let go of my, uh, the other credential. Right. So, yeah. and I also feel like the more people that are just kind of trying to have the credential, it's kind of buying into a system that doesn't necessarily serve people. Yeah. So, yeah. That was, I don't know that that's was my decision-making process. Yeah. So you're moving toward, will you have like a similar credential on the other side of the body trust stuff? Well, it's different because they're so, um, they're so accessible, right? Like yeah. there's all these financial things you have to do in order to maintain this credential with certified eating disorder specialist. I'm going to, um, I am going to become a certified body trust provider and it's totally out of alignment of what I believe is what helps people. There's not like, you know, lifetime dues. It's just basically like you write a little essay ah. about why you feel like you align. 
So it's also set up very non-hierarchical, which also feels way more in alignment. Yeah. <laughs> also kind of weird though, because I feel like there is something about that hierarchical, like money-based system that makes people trust it so much. Like thinking about it now, obviously shouldn't matter because it just means that people with money get to do it and people without money don't. <laughs> but there is something to that, like where people place their trust. If you're in one of those credentialed boards with all the dues and all the everything compared to like, I wrote an essay and I'm aligned with it. I could totally see some people being like, oh, then you don't have the, you know, the official training and letters and whatever that I, that I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, I, I think some people um, are still going to be aligned with a system that is about experts. And yeah. I think uh -huh. that, that is a whole nother kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am re realizing that I am, that mm. my way of working is not about me being the eating disorder expert, but more about really listening to the lived experience of a person with whatever their, whatever has influenced the, the disconnection with their ability to be safe in their body and to feel belonging yeah. in their body. Out of curiosity, will that change your scope of practice at all? No, because I still have my license as a licensed clinical mental health counselor. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. super interesting. So I and, think that Jesse, if I could yes. say, like, I also have a little privilege to let go of this life, this mm -hmm. certification because I have been doing this work for long enough in kind of a small town where a lot of people already know and respect and trust right. that I know what I'm doing with folks with eating disorders. Right. So that's yeah. another piece of this. Yeah. Or like, because you've had it, you can, it, it like would fight back against any doubt someone had that you don't have the training. Like you had the training, you just decided that training sucked and wasn't for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, it didn't like a hundred percent suck. Right. There's, there's aspects of it that are, that were helpful to, you know, understand all of the basic pieces. Mm -hmm. And then what I feel like was, has been missing in the training is understanding all of the constructs that make it so it's so hard to recover in the society that we live in. And, right. and that's the piece that the body trust program really offers is like, you know, it's, it's, if there is nothing to let go of into safety and belonging, if you let go of your eating disorder or your attempts at having an idealized body, then that feels really scary. So right. I think that's something that has also been important. It's like, it's a, it was a step of understanding and not really explaining. And now I understand why people take so long to recover because yeah. of these big things that are in place. Yeah. Could you say more about that? So the block to recovery is often, just to make sure I'm getting this right, it is often that giving up the eating disorder literally doesn't make sense because they don't have a feeling of safety. So it's like this coping mechanism would be unwise to give up. Right, right. So, okay. so safety and um, and connection. So both like our physical safety in the world, yeah. um, but also like our our belonging and our connection and our attachment. And so I'll talk a lot to clients about like diet culture as an attachment figure. And if oh, I diet, love that. Yeah. I mean, if diet culture is your attachment figure, then why would you not do things to not uh -huh. get love? Make it happy. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's sort of similar to what I'm doing now with like you have to, you have to build in um skills and support and authentic community of belonging in order to let go of something that yeah. has given that to you. You have to build yeah. that in before you're willing to do that. Yeah. Oh, I love that language and framing of it as an attachment figure. That's so cool. Yeah. That's so true. Yeah. I mean, that's what maintains it. Right. And, yeah. and what, what I see with my clients and, and honestly with myself, I mean, in my own experience too, as someone who does this work and day in and day out, here's people talk about how much they hate their body and all of these things. Like it's hard to not take that on in some way mm -hmm. and really diving into understanding, um, you know, like racism and ableism and sexism and all the isms yeah. that piece has really helped me with my own, like last bit of it's so not in my values to try to feel better about myself by being 
higher on the hierarchy. <laughs> right. And, and that piece for me has just been like, I'll wake up and have a bad quote unquote body image day. And I'm like, yeah, that's not who I am. <laughs> and, you know, yes. lots of different layers had to go first before getting there. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so for me, and even in my own healing, that's like been the thing that I've just been like, Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So I totally want to hear more about this hierarchy thing, but before we move too far past it, I also wanted to get to the idea that I think a lot of listeners would be really surprised, um, about giving up the eating disorder specialist label, because I feel like there's an assumption. It's sort of like the white coat syndrome type deal, like with the hierarchy of all of that. Um, but people would assume if you're an eating disorder specialist, then you just must know there's everything that there is to know about helping people overcome eating disorders. So I'd love to have you talk a little bit about the flaws in that assumption. Yeah. And yeah, just to sort of help someone who's like, but that's like the most professional thing. Shouldn't it be like the right thing? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, saying some of this stuff that I'm about to say makes me feel a little vulnerable inside because mm. I, I really believe that different ways of working and treating eating disorders work for different people. Um, and I think in my experience as a therapist, the way that it's set up right now, as far as what's um, best practices around helping people heal, I have seen people be harmed a lot of people actually be harmed mm -hmm. by, by, by the way that treatment is set up by, um, in outpatient therapy, you know, we're supposed to have contracts that if a person doesn't follow these behavioral things and oh, we say, wow. no, we're not going to be in relationship with you. And, and to me that has never felt good. And, um, and so, but I don't have like, you know, a whole treatment center full of success stories that the way that I do things right. is, is it's just what I feel like in my own heart and gut around yeah. this. So, you know, I think there is, I think because eating disorders can be very scary. I mean, they're the second yeah. deadliest mental health issue um, that, that having some of these sort of more behavioral structures um, feel important to people. And there are times where that is necessary. And um, I think for me, the the, the eating disorder is telling us about a person's sense of safety in the world and their trauma history, about a person's like what the conditions of attachment were for them to get love yeah. and belonging and telling us about their sensory system and like what's happening from a sensory processing place. And, and if we are just trying to get rid of the eating disorder, then we're not really listening to what yeah. the deeper things that are, are happening for a person that that's making them hold on to the eating disorder as a protective mechanism. And so, so my, and this has been inspired by, um, the work of Rachel Lewis Marlowe, who created Embodied Recovery for Eating Disorders. It's like recovery is an additive process. It's not necessarily going to help us to heal by just taking away the eating disorder. We have to really understand the yeah. function there with trauma detachment and sensory processing, and then start to add things in in order for people to let go and yeah. move into a different way. For it way to no longer be necessary. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 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 And because we have this society that's like, hey, being thin is going to end being young and being white is going to yeah. give you more power and privilege. Like it's really hard to convince someone that letting go of this strategy is going to actually be helpful yep. to them. Right. So the way that treatment is set up is very um, it's it's very behavioral. It's like it's really easy for someone to go into treatment and just be obedient through the process. Uh -huh. But then come or people please and then come out yeah. at the other side and be like, I'm gonna do what I want. <laughs> yes. And I've had a lot of clients who report things like, you know, inpatient treatment recovery programs and that kind of thing where they just got their bodies up to a certain weight and were let go and almost had like no interaction in the mental health component of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, depending on how, like, if there's a lot of weight restoration that happens, there's a, an idea in the eating disorder treatment field that, um, you know, in a starved state, and this is true, like your mental capacity is really not fully online. Sure, yeah. 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 You know, I've never heard the thing about the contracts. Like <laughs> it sounds so 
freaking threatening, especially in light of everything else you're saying to be like, and coercive, you know, to be like, I won't be your therapist anymore. If you screw this up, like it just is, you're right. It's asking for obedience rather than building a relationship. Uh, I could just see that doing so much harm. It makes a lot of sense that that would not sit right. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's the way that as a, with that credential that you're trained on how to how to help people navigate like the levels of care and outpatient yeah. if they can't follow the outpatient contract right. then they go right it just it just doesn't healing doesn't work that way in my in my opinion yeah. makes sense okay yeah. so going back um you have mentioned that you used to feel like you wanted to feel better in your body so that you could feel better than other people. And I personally totally relate to that. This is that hierarchy thing. I think a lot of folks struggling with body image issues feel the same way, whether or not they're willing to label it that way, because I feel like it's one of those shamey things that like no one wants to admit to. Yes. Um, my face is like totally red right now. Yes, <laughs> mine too. I mean, but it really is ultimately, even if someone is unwilling to admit it, a huge component of body image issues is the desire to climb the social hierarchy. It's like the um, social climbing of our era, right? It's yes. about marrying up in 2023, basically. Yeah. <laughs> it's so powerful. So talk a little bit about that and how that has shifted for you as you've done some of this more like white supremacy and liberation framework stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a really vulnerable thing to say also. And I do think for me, like naming that was an important thing to be like, wow, mm -hmm. this is so not who I am as a human. And this is what I'm engaging in. And the thing that woke me up to that piece was um, Aubrey Gordon wrote this essay where she talks about if you're not in a fat body, it's not internalized fat phobia that you have. It's internalized dominance. Oh, I love Aubrey. I don't know if I've read that essay, but that line is intense. I know. I love her too. And I was, I was just like, oh my God, that's such a painful thing to think about. Like, uh -huh. okay, right now in this moment, I'm struggling because I feel like I'm not going to be like higher on the hierarchy than this person. And, right. and as you learn, like, as I mean, as I was learning about my privileges, it's, I actually am, I have a lot of hierarchy. And so yeah. thinking that in order to feel better about myself, I have to all of these, I have to be better than all these other people. That was like a big values. No, for me. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I kind of immediately want to start adopting that, that language because it really is, it's so uncomfortable. It's so viscerally uncomfortable, yes. but it does immediately show you that even though this is a very you know, personal issue for people, usually a very private issue. And it, they're thinking about it in terms of like their relationship with themselves. It, or, or if they are thinking about relationship with community, it's like, I just want people to like me. I don't want to be, you know, judged or whatever. There is also this icky, dark piece of it. That's like, I at least want to be better than those kind of people. Yeah. If not, and I know like everyone's sort of different in this way, but if not, I want to be the best of all the people or, you know, like really at the top for, yeah for gaining power and privilege and status and all of those things. Mm -hmm. But it just feels like a default. You don't think of it as I want to be dominant. Usually you name it to yourself as I just, you know, I want to be special or great or successful or something, you know? Right, right. Yeah. And I, in my life experience, you know, I think aging is one of those inevitable things that we go through that we lose privilege. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I, I have been straight size. I have been small fat. I have gone back to straight size. I have been small fat. <laughs> so I, I, my body sort of kind of goes into privilege and out of privilege. I mean, according to the Aubrey Gordon kind of understanding of what those sure. labels are. And, um, and then also I've had, I've had like really good health and then I've had some really intense health stuff. So these are the places in my well, and also I, I love the, I'm, I, I consider myself neurodivergent in that I'm a highly sensitive person. And I love thinking about highly sensitive person as a neurodivergent. So, sure. you know, that's another identity that I feel like, yeah. um, kind of creates a little less privilege. So I think as I have had experiences where I've lost privilege, uh -huh. I think there has been greater compassion and understanding about what it must be like to have less privilege. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm never going to know 
you know, certain extents of it because of some of, you know, mo mostly around just being a white person in this world. Um, and I think that the losing of the privilege has opened up a lot of compassion in me that yeah. has also really helped me have an authentic relationship with my relationship with food and my relationship yeah. with my so my story, well, I mean, I was a personal trainer back in New York. I was also very young at the time, very, very fit, very lean. I mean, I would say I worked for the leanness. I, I was working for the strength and the empowerment. I loved lifting weights and all that, but I also like, I definitely ate in such a way that was intended to fuel performance with as much body fat reduction as possible. Like it was yeah. intentional. I never was like, you know, a yo-yo diet or anything, but it was very much, it took up a lot of brain space and it yeah. did cause anxiety on like vacations and things like that. Like, yes. oh no, I had all these rules. I didn't even realize because I just carry them <laughs> out like normal at home, whatever. So as I was learning about this stuff, I was also, I left New York, which allowed me to basically like get to know myself in a bunch of different places. And I traveled and I lived different places for a while. And during that time I gave up fitness because it, or I gave up like heavy lifting anyway, yes. because it just, there was no routine. There was no like anything yeah, really yeah. available. And I definitely saw changes in my body, a little bit of weight gain, a lot of like muscle loss visibility, yes. you know, but, uh, with regard to food that, that actually came later, I was like already seeing losses and privilege. It was the kind of thing where like people would say to me in like the coffee shop, like, Oh my God, look at your arms. What do you do? You know, I felt yeah, so yeah. special. So, uh, at the top of the hierarchy for, for years. And yes. it was just that subtle shift of like, that kind of disappeared. And even though I still fit like almost every box, um, that I had, it no longer like caught people's attention to this extreme extent. Right. Yes. Yes. And then as I gave up a lot of my food rules, which had to take a little longer because giving up fitness was like a matter of practicality. Giving up the food rules was a matter of like conscious and intentional work. Yes. Um, as I did that and I started it, the changes became even more, um, you know, visible. I feel like I had been so afraid of that. Like when I left New York and I started to see changes, I freaked out. I was like, oh my God, okay, I got to do some work around this. I got to do some work. Like it took a lot of energy, but actually as the process went on and I lost more privilege and went from like super special girl to like, you know, regular special girl, <laughs> uh, <laughs> whatever, you know, like super body privileged, but no longer, you know, with this status, um, the further along that dip that I got, the better I felt. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like the easier the inner work became, the more I was able to just like really recognize, oh, okay. I didn't want my worth to be tied to that anyway. I didn't realize it still had been. Um, it, it, it felt much more peaceful. And I see the same thing in my clients. Like they're terrified yeah. to lose or rather to gain weight usually when they're like going into intuitive eating or anti-diet or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. The hardest part is the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're like leaping off a, <laughs> a bridge. <laughs> Yeah. But it gets easier and you start to be like, oh, you know what? Like, I'm cool without that mm -hmm. special status or whatever it was. I also find that there's like a longing for a lot of clients who have a lot of that special status to be seen and mirrored for something other than their appearance. Like, 100%. it's like, yes, it's so it's 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 the fear of losing that. And at the same time, this real deep desire to have that reflection of who they are really be about who they are. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I definitely experienced that. And somewhere in my process of like losing, you know, tiny amounts of privilege in this journey. Um, I also started to get mad when people would comment on it because I had done the work to like dislodge my self-worth from this statusy thing. And it, it started to feel like an insult if someone was like, oh my God, you're so hot or you're so fit or any of those things that I used to take as compliments, I was like, if that's all you're getting from me, like move on. Yeah. I am a very cool person. <laughs> like there is so much to talk about that is not that. Like I'm not down for that. That feels yeah. like erasure and it sucks and I'm not down for it anymore. Yeah. I have become like the most unpopular person at dinner parties. <laughs> because I just can't keep my mouth shut. Like when the person is like, Oh, to, to the person next to me, you look so good. What have you done? Like, yes. I can't keep my mouth shut about Same. how 
that just like, what are you really communicating right now? Yep. <laughs> like, I, I just, I can't be like easygoing about that, Jesse. And I have the lost some friends. <laughs> must no, I get it. <laughs> I also feel like, uh, there is something about that knee jerk reaction of when we see each other and it's just like immediate, especially between women, it's just immediate. Oh my God, you look amazing. And I sometimes challenge clients to say the truer, deeper, more vulnerable thing, which is almost always like, I'm happy to see you. Yeah. Nobody yeah. feels comfortable saying the more vulnerable, truer thing. Like it's a lot more comfortable to be like, you look so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> well, and our visual sensory system of course. like is taking in input around the way people shift and change, right? It's yeah. just, we have put this like, um, you know, value to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I also wanted to touch on something that you mentioned, which is as you were experiencing this loss in status, power, and privilege, you also experienced an increase in compassion and empathy and understanding. And I absolutely agree. My experience reflects the same thing. I know that I would not be able to do, like this is such a, again, like a shamey, shitty thing to say, but I know I would not have been able to get into the anti-racism and liberation work that I did if I didn't have the experience of sexism as a woman, right? Like the only thing that really made it click for me was, well, I've experienced, you know, a, a something somewhere that felt like shitty to me, I can just imagine, which is why I'm like, how do white men ever get to this? Like, I can't even imagine <laughs> what their ends are, but it does. It makes you so much more compassionate. And I think just a better person. Yeah. 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 When, you know, in, in the summer of 2020, and of course, like all, like all good white women, I got involved in a book club. <laughs> And it was, uh, you know, other white women. And every time that we would talk about a concept, I would be like, yeah, but what about sizeism? What about weightism? Like, uh -huh. I was like getting mad that that layer wasn't there. And then I'd yeah. be like, Katie, that's not the point of what, but, but at the same time, it is a point because, you know, it's intersectional that yep. these things are, you know, happening. So that for me was sexism. Yes. And then sizeism, weightism. Yes. And then, and then when, I sort of realized that I didn't have all the answers that I needed to listen to as many people as possible who have diverse lived experiences of marginalized yeah. identities. Like that is part of body image healing work too. Yeah. And that, that was helpful because then it just wasn't like, well, what about sizes? I'm like, yeah, yeah. I want to hear what racism, how has that impacted yeah. this person? You know, ableism, how has that impacted this person? You no know, transphobia, how has this impacted this person? Mm -hmm. So there is something about listening to the voices of people in marginalized bodies. I know most people, the first go-to, my first go-to anyway, was like social media. Like I got rid of all the people I'd been following from the fitness and, you know, kind of nutrition space. And I started following people of diverse bodies, experiences, it, just all these things. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered, another deep, dark, shamey secret was that I had been objectifying these people without realizing it because I wasn't like thinking, I wasn't catcalling them, right? I didn't think of it like, woohoo, like <laughs> it was more like I literally just did not see them as human in the same way that I saw myself. Yes. Because there was something about, you know, each of these different identities that I had never uh, really been exposed to, really been around, really had a reason to humanize. And of course I had all these messages that I had a reason to dehumanize or see as inferior in some way. And so I had to work through all this discomfort yes. of like reading the, emo cause the people that I followed, it generally wasn't just about body representation. They were usually writers or like thinkers and I would read their stuff yes. and yeah. I would just be like, Oh my God, they're feeling that like mm -hmm. shit, because if I had just seen a picture that would not have been my first thought at the time. Yes. My first thought would have been some kind of judgment about their lifestyle or, you know, whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. It's so uncomfortable, but you learn to humanize people when you are exposed, when you are listening, and when they are actually giving us all the goddamn gift of sharing exactly. their humanity. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important, Jesse, because like objectifying ourselves, objectifying others. Like to me, that's the, that's the massive wound that we're playing out with body image issues. Yeah. Um, 
when we start to be able to relate to ourselves as human and others as human, I think that's where the healing happens. And I love, um, I mean, Jean Kilburn, she's like old school and all of this work. And she has this quote about like, I'm not going to get it exactly correct, but like the first step in the able to be violent towards another is to see them as an object. Yes. Yes. I've heard that. Yes. And it's so true. Yeah. And I think like the first step to be violent towards ourselves is to see ourselves as an object, but then the path to healing then is to start to notice the ways that you're relating to people and the earth and everything Uh as an object and start to really kind of come into that like authentic human relationship with people and our bodies and ourselves. Yeah. And to me, ultimately that's what reclaiming beauty is about. Yeah like the heart of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's something really interesting to me in that around the like social hierarchies and status, because obviously it is much easier to feel compassion for someone when you are thinking about their feelings rather than their body, um, <laughs> which makes a lot of sense why it's so much easier to do harm when you're, you've basically cut yourself off from that kind of thinking. Yeah. It's also extremely, um, in the world we live in, it's just, an, it's extremely unpleasant to start thinking about the feelings of people in marginalized bodies. Like it's no wonder we don't want to, it, it is a very painful topic and you have to be able to tolerate that pain inside yourself, which I think is really hard, right. uh, you know, for anyone, even those of us with like training and <laughs> like, yeah. we're dedicating our lives to this kind of thing. It's still so unpleasant. Yeah. But then also there was something about the hierarchy where I'm just now imagining like the moment you put yourself on the hierarchy or you put someone else on the hierarchy, you have stripped them of their humanity because now now they're like a a number in line, right? Like exactly. Yeah. That is immediate objectification, even if it's not the kind of objectification we normally think of around sexualization. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which means you can do them as much harm as you want with no, you know, like both (laughs) above and below you, right? It's like people above you, you can do harm because screw them. People below you, like they should get their shit together. It just, it strips humanity out of the entire experience of being on this planet. Yeah. So it takes a lot of courage, I think, to be a witness to the pain of what people have experienced. Yeah. And I mean, I think for me, that was a big lesson of the summer of 2020. It's like, I had enough privilege that I could have just like hid in my house and, uh-huh. and, and there's still more like, I think litness, listening and witnessing yeah. um, the pain of marginalization feels really, really important in this process. Yeah. yeah. I will say um, one of the most helpful lessons for me when I started going into this and when I was in LA, I was doing like black lives matter meetups and that kind of thing. And what felt so like just mind blowing to me because I had been so steeped in like must listen to marginalized voices all the time, must learn everything I can, <laughs> must center, you know, um, was there was, uh, I don't know, so somebody spoke and said it's really important for white people to get together and talk about what they're experiencing only with white people so as not to burden people of color with like, yes. did you guys know how horrible this is? Because I'm just learning about it for the first time. And yeah. so I would literally go to my white friends who were like steeped in the anti-racism space who were generally further along than me. And I would bring them like the terrible devil's advocate thought that I was having, you mm. know, and I would be like, can you explain to me why it's not this? And then say the thought. And they were so patient and kind. And they would be like, sure, let's break it down. And you, yeah. we really need spaces like listening to marginalized voices is so important. But then also this stuff is in there really deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been important for me too, Jesse. Um, you know, I've had since since that presentation where someone said, hey, this is all well and good for white people. Like I've had other experiences where I have, um, you know, not intentionally, but the impact of something that I said or did caused harm to a person of color. Mm. And um, I'm very grateful for like the people that in my life that I, you know, that I can say, hey, this happened. I feel so much shame. I feel horrible. Um, and part of me still feels like I didn't do anything wrong, right? Like, of course, and, yeah. And have, and have people that can say, okay, I like you're still an amazing human, and this is this is the yeah. thing that you're missing in this yeah. piece. And yeah, I still feel like um, 
I still feel pretty new in all of that. And I think there has, there's like a willingness in me now to be like, I'm going to mess up the, um, in the Center for Body Trust program, the very first module was taught by Desiree Attaway, who is um, a diversity and education um, consultant. And she was amazing. She's basically like, okay, I just want to tell you right now, you're going to mess up. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to make some, you're going to hurt somebody and let's talk about how to make repair in a way that's, and I mean, I love that because I talk about that all of the time as a therapist and the Mm -hmm. work that I do. So to have just kind of given that, Hey, this is, it's going to happen. Yeah. We have blind spots. Yeah. How do we make repair when that happens? That felt really important to start a whole process with that piece. A hundred percent. I actually, because that was a big topic in the like meetings and events that I went to in LA. I remember trying to explain to my mom who like is, you know, watches Fox news, whatever was hearing about this, this movement, black lives matters, and certainly getting a very different impression from reality. And so she would, she would push back when I talked about it and be like, you know, well, why should I feel bad about being white when I didn't like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh my God, I just want you to come to it. Like, I just want you to, there is so much compassion in this space. You have absolutely no idea. Like you might imagine that they're all like anti-white people, but nothing could be further from the truth. It really just allows us all to be exactly where we are. Mm-hmm. And the whole thing of like, you are not responsible for having racism conditioned into you, but yeah. you are accountable for it now. Yes. Yes. Like yeah. that to me is so liberating and beautiful and absolutely not what the other side is imagining it would be. Right. Yeah. 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 Well, and that takes me back to um, when you really start to understand what diet culture and racism have in common, it's, it's, what do they have in common? Wait, just <laughs> go into that. Sorry, okay, finish your so, thought. <laughs> so, um, so in the Center for Body Trust, well, first of all, we, we we had like five books that we had to read. One was Fearing the Black Body. So I I, I had I had that book and I was like, I have the book, but you know, I didn't read it. So actually I fit I finished reading that book. And then um Gloria Lucas, who created Nalgona Positivity Pride, did a webinar as part of this training that like I I was weeping um, about like colonialism and historical trauma and how that impacts yeah. eating disorders. And, you know, in that um, webinar, I think that's sort of the, the way that racism kind of fits in here, right? Like the origins of fat phobia, where did we yeah. learn that it was yeah. not okay to be fat, right? It was um, anti-immigrant sentiment, it was the transatlantic slave trade and it was Protestantism. and the elite white people are always trying to yeah. figure out how to have more privilege. And so slenderness kind of became the thing that was fetishized and yeah. fat became sort of associated with black and sinful. And I mean, when you hear it kind of laid out like that, like yeah. it's hard not to have a response inside about, oh, if I wake up in the morning and I want to be thinner, I'm actually just being complicit in this way of seeing the world. And that's not okay. That upholds racism. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. And I'm not saying that it's that easy because I know there's so many layers and it's of course. Me, like this, this level of information, I think because I had done a lot of the, my own personal history work and attachment work and this level of information, just, it was like the last route that yeah. I'm just like ripped out. And I'm like, no love. So Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings has actually come up on this podcast before. If anyone's listening, I do really recommend it. It was recommended to me during one of these, um, I need to play out a devil's advocate. Can you explain to me why I'm wrong, please? uh, Moments in my life. And I was basically like, I just like I'd been seeing people say that, you know, diet culture is rooted in white supremacy. And of course, me, a white person who knows everything was like, absolutely no way that doesn't make sense to me. So it can't be true. And so I was like trying to talk that out with a friend. They recommended the book. And I was just like, oh, I am wrong again. Always constantly <laughs> like it explains it. It's a bit dry. I will say if you are not into history, it might be a little bit of a tough read, but it explains everything step by step by step through history so that there is absolutely no finishing that book and not understanding how it's rooted in white supremacy. Yes, I agree. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So when you are working with a client now, 
what is different for you now that you have like adopted a social justice lens and you have all of these frameworks in your head? How do you like what's actually different in the work you do? Yeah, um, well, I love the body. Body trust has a whole like framework and way of working. And so that has been a helpful, um, it's actually a tree and it's about like um, deepening your roots into body trust. Um, so I appreciate that. And, um, you know, one of the things that maybe I wouldn't have done as much before is like, I would be so compassionate around how the eating disorder and the body image um, is a protector, but that's yeah. really important to me to talk about like honoring our protectors. Yeah. Um, so I used to be, and I, I still am compassionate about that and believe in recovery as an additive process. But one of the things that needs to be added in is I will just be more clear about, and this body size that you're in right now has more privilege than if you were to be in recovery and move towards your natural shape and size, you're going right. to lose privilege. We got to talk about that piece. Yeah. Like, yes. have you thought it? about that piece? Yeah. How, how does your self-objectification that's coming through that impact your relationships with everyone in the world? Because if this is the way that you're interacting with yourself, how are you seeing the humans around you? Does that yeah. feel in alignment with your values? So I think I'm a little bit more pushy around yeah. some of this stuff than where before I was just like, so, oh yeah, of course it makes so much sense. Now I'm like, it makes so much sense. And have you thought yeah. about this? <laughs> how are you feeling now? <laughs> yeah. So the loss of status and privilege being one of the reasons, or rather the fear of the loss or, you know, resentment of the loss, whatever it might be, is mm -hmm. a big thing I write about in my book. And I, at one point I gave an imagery and I, I feel like I changed the imagery in every draft because I didn't want to be like sort of, sort of horror-y or make people like really shudder, but also I kind of did. And yeah. so I'm pretty sure what I ended up on was like, the desire for higher status body, like to lose weight or whatever, it's basically like saying there's a pile of bodies and everyone on the bottom is getting squished to death. So instead of like zooming back, like you said, and being like, oh, this is a terrible system. Let's not make piles of bodies. You say, okay, then it's very important for me to climb to the top. Knowing you are committing acts of harm, knowing you are a part of what will be hurting people on the bottom. And it, it is a disgusting image. I recognize that, but like, it also hits the point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because that is powerful. what we are doing. Yes. Yeah. We are saving ourselves knowing it does harm. Mm -hmm. We are protecting ourselves knowing it's going to cost people their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you have to have images like this for people to kind of get that visceral sense of yeah. this, this is an alignment with who I am. Yeah. And I just have to name like, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm now in a small fat body. Like this is all well and good for people who <laughs> i still have a lot of access to privilege. Uh -huh. Right. And, um, and like being in a marginalized body does it, it, it you have less uh, ability to be safe in the world. Right. Yes. And I think that's something that I felt that I have really understood more and that I bring in more to the work for the folks that I work with that are in marginalized bodies because yeah. actually I really love with people love working with people in larger bodies and kind of looking at this piece around okay so if you land in your identity you actually are less safe yeah in a yeah. society that has all of this judgment right yes. and then, then if you have other intersections like you know you're a black woman or you're you know queer like all of those mm -hmm. things you do have less safety and and then what do you do then and that's yeah. been another piece that i think has been an important learning right like i think yeah pre all of this heidi was like oh we just have to you know feel a sense of belonging but now i'm like yeah but but for, <laughs> for many identities yeah it's not safe right so the whole idea that I would say like body positivity really, um, when it went mainstream anyway, it became this individualistic thing, like almost right. like pull your up, but pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality around body image. Like you just need to overcome all of those lacks of safety and discrimination and things you have to face and just decide for yourself that you're good. Um, but I feel like ultimately that only works for privileged people. That's right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it's one of many of the flaws in it and why I, I don't, you know, teach body positivity. I do body neutrality. But also there's just something in that idea of like, 
when you're uh, working with a person in a marginalized body, it's so tempting almost to, to reassure, right? Like, oh no, none of those bad things will happen. Um, for me in a very privileged body, I know that I can never, would never, but like the temptation is there, right? I'm like, but you're so great. <laughs> like, it's yeah, tempting because yeah. you want, you want people to feel good. Uh, you want the people you care about to feel safe and happy, but you cannot impact this. That's right. Right. You want people to feel hopeful. Yeah, and, exactly. Hopeful. Yes, yes. Yeah. And then I think then when that, when that comes up, it's how do you build resiliency to the system? Yes. And then how do you find safe places of belonging with either affinity groups yes. or people that are open to say, to listen around what your experience is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it, what is the difference for you in working with a person in a very privileged body versus a person in a very marginalized body who wants the power and privilege and status. Like it, when that is the main thing that their body image or eating disorder stuff is, is sort of circling around, how is it different in the way that you work with them? Or is it different? I don't think it is different. And I think this is another place where, um, I, I think that my my number one value is body autonomy. And a person might have a whole plan around an eating disorder or other weight, um, you know, manipulation tactics. And yeah. this is, I'm not going to make a contract with them until, until right. I'm going to be like, I'm going to really try to understand like what's motivating this. And you know, help them kind of have informed consent around their yes. choices. So understand yes. like, what are the impact of making these choices? Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, someone with a more marginalized identity with me, I, I don't feel like it's my, I can't say don't do something, right? It's like, I don't understand fully a person's experience and their desire maybe for to have different kinds of safety or yeah. different kinds of privilege. So I think it, it, it's not different in how I work with people. I, I really kind of try to put body autonomy first yeah. and try to notice it myself when I want to get preachy around. Oh, sure, sure. Doing, yeah. Right. And just come back to, okay, body autonomy, informed consent, uh -huh. really understanding the context about what's making a person vulnerable to all of these things, helping them try to heal those things so that's less vulnerable. Yeah. But at the end of the day, right? Like, it's body autonomy is the thing that I think has got to be centered. Yeah. I feel very similar in my work and I, I can't tell you how many conversations, I mean, obviously my clients come to me for body neutrality coaching, like they know yeah. where they're trying to go, <laughs> Yeah, um, but there have been so many conversations where I have straight up looked someone in the eye and given them permission to go on Ozempic, get a facelift, um, start a diet again, you know, like whatever it might be, because a, there are no body neutral behaviors. There's only yeah. the stripping away of the sort of unconscious shamey thing that we've been talking about so that you can yeah. make it, like you said, informed consent, a conscious yeah. decision, but yeah. also like for someone in a very privileged body, making these decisions, it can align with their values. But more often, I would say when we really get into that conversation, it won't for someone yes. in a marginalized body, it often or I, I don't know if it's often, but more likely will it, because it's like, I have this career I'm going after. I don't want to face, you know, the discrimination, or I have this thing that is the most important to me. And therefore this actually aligns with it. And I'm like, if we can get to that, yeah. like you are a body neutral queen, like you're yeah. good, do whatever the hell you want. Right. Like, yeah, and honestly yeah. do whatever you want anyway, but just having it come from that understanding of like, I am honoring my values with this. And I know it doesn't make me a better person or a more worthy person on the other side. It just makes me a person less likely to face discrimination. Yeah. This is, it's so nuanced, Jesse. And I can tell that you and I both do this work on a yeah. daily basis <laughs> to get have all of these nuances. Um, yeah. <sighs> Yeah, this comes back to me to like, what's your attachment figure? And what are the mm. rules? What are the conditions of belonging of your attachment figure? Ooh, yeah, so yeah. if your attachment figure is Hollywood, yeah, it's a belonging, right? I do feel like I have, like, I mean, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, which is a much, you know, my sisters in yeah. Charlotte, they have different rules around how they need to have appearance to negotiate their community, right? I, mm -hmm. I intentionally chose a community where I could be less, you know, less in how I present myself in those yeah, ways because yeah, yeah. it feels better and more natural to me. So say this for the listener, 
they are listening and they're like, this all sounds really cool, but it sounds really hard to give up the desire for higher status and, and all of those things. Um, what advice would you give or how would you recommend, I mean, even just using what you said just now about the attachment figure, like how, how do you recommend they start the process of thinking about that differently? Yeah, well, I think it's what are the conditions of love and belonging of the communities that I'm involved with? Oh my God, that's so simple and so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's language from Rachel Lewis Marlowe from the Embodied Recovery for Institute. Love she's, it. She has, um, she's she's brilliant, and she has a way with words where you're just like, <laughs> yeah, it's <what>? so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I would start there about yeah. getting curious about that, yeah. and is it a like what are what are you having to do in order to get that uh -huh. need met, and are there is that really who you want to be? Is that really your authentic self? And if not, how do you start to find places where love and belonging is really based on the authentic self aspects of who you are? Oh my God. And also I want to point out that anyone listening and being like, yeah, that's really lovely, but my communities represent everyone. They don't. <laughs> like, there are so many communities out there. There are so, there are so many people on this planet the feeling is understandable when you've been surrounded by a certain kind of person or like an attachment community that has certain conditions. You just feel like that's default. That's going to be the case forever, but it's right. not, I promise it's not. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what does reclaiming beauty to me mean to you now, all these years later after writing the book? Well, interestingly, I feel like it still means the same thing. It's just all of the stuff in between is like, like the deep, deepest ocean rather than kind of like a shallow lake. Um, Love it. I mean, reclaiming beauty to me is like beauty is um, not about the societal understanding about what we're supposed to look like in our appearance, but it's more about the qualities of who we are as a human that we have to offer ourselves and the world. Yeah. And um, like, I would rather be kind than hot. And that's basically oh, the, the I bottom. love that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I agree, but I also feel like I would have to, I'd have to fish around a little bit to come up with like the adjectives that that would like resonate the most. Cause I feel like there's something about like I, I would rather be like alive, like curious, engaged, you know, there's something else too that's like I recognize that those are at opposite ends of decision making. Yeah, yeah. And I know which one I want. Yeah. 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 <sighs> okay. So what yeah. would you like? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the the inspiration for Reclaiming Beauty came. Um, I was at my first family weekend at an Eden sort of treatment center where I worked. And one of the, um, one of the clients at the treatment center's father was Cherokee. We have a lot of Cherokee in Asheville. And in the family weekend, he read this, well, he recited this Cherokee poem, which is the, um, in beauty, may I walk all day long, may I walk with beauty before me, may I walk with beauty behind me, may I walk, like, and mm. it goes on. And it, my mind was blown because I was like, this is not about, you know, having best body in the world. Right. This is about like, how are we engaging with ourselves, our communities, with the earth from this really like yeah. beautiful, kind, loving place. And interestingly, it was another culture that kind uh -huh. of woke me up to this. And, um, and I, I feel like that's still to this day, what reclaiming beauty yeah. is about. I love that. So I was going to ask you, what would you like listeners to take away from this episode? Because I can imagine so many different pieces of our conversation really resonating. Um, yeah, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, tell you tell me. I want to know what people take away from this. Okay. Um, well, one of the things is like really, really get curious about your identities and where you have privilege and where you don't and start to understand that about yourself and um, and how that's impacted your relationship with food and your relationship with your body. That's one place. Um, really get curious about what are the conditions of attachment and love and belonging and, and is that really in alignment with who you are and where can you start mm -hmm. finding that? Um, letting go of diet culture as an attachment figure is harder to do if we don't have another sense about who we are and, and where we yes. feel that safety and connection. So starting to get curious about what that is. Uh -huh. um, 
yeah, th those are kind of the big pieces. Listen to people with marginalized identities, seek them out, yeah. check out the body trust program because it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So many takeaways. I was actually also thinking like, I would hope that, and, and I hope this in all my work, like I am willing to throw myself under a bus if I think it's going to help people in every imaginable way, I've done it in my content so many times and it's always a little stressful, but like, you know, it aligns with my values. I would hope that listening to two people with as much privilege as you and I have talk about some of the like growing pains of moving into a place of anti-racism work and taking on a liberatory framework as opposed to the hierarchical framework and the status and power driven framework that we, we get as a default, like that that will maybe help people feel less shame or less resistance inside themselves about doing that work and making mistakes or being wrong because we need people who are willing to make mistakes and be wrong. We are going to make mistakes and be wrong. But like we, like you said, like that's a part of the process. And if you're not willing to do that, you basically don't get to do it. Like you don't yeah. get to unpack this and have this new framework. So yes. I just think I, for one, was very impacted by watching other people model this. And I would hope that that lands with people. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Okay. So if someone is listening to this and really vibing with you and your work and your perspective, where can they find you and how can they work with you? Yeah. Um, I have a website, reclaimingbeauty.com and an Instagram page, reclaimingbeauty. And um, I have a practice. It's a small practice of folks who work with people. We have um, a few therapists. Uh, we're licensed. You know, therapists are sort of, um, we can only see folks in certain places. So we're licensed. We can see folks in North Carolina yeah. and South Carolina. But then um, creating affinity spaces for people in larger bodies is real important to me. So we also have a um, fat community peer support group that we run a few times a year, and that's open to anyone anywhere. And awesome. then there's a um, woman in my practice. Her name is Melanie Lasaco, who does uh, embodiment coaching for specifically for people in larger bodies. She is a somatic experiencing practitioner and is doing a lot of this bottom up work and um, and also the social justice context. And I, I learn a lot from her. She's amazing. And she can see anybody anywhere as well. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It's oh, been a plan, very fun Jessie. conversation <laughs> to the listeners. Just know that we were worried that it wouldn't be an interesting conversation because we agree on basically everything. <laughs> <laughs> we're, normally I'm like interviewing something about stuff that is like totally different. Um, but this was, this was awesome. Heidi, thank you so yes. much. Yes. My pleasure, Jesse. Thank you. You're welcome. And to everybody who is listening and wants to find me, you can find me at jessineeland.com or at jessineeland on pretty much all the socials. And I keep forgetting to mention this, but I'd like to start mentioning it at the end of my podcasts. I have a book out. It's called Body yes. Neutral, a revolutionary guide to overcoming <laughs> body image issues. Heidi came to my book launch event. It's amazing. It's an amazing book. I, all my, I gave it to everyone on my team. They all are telling me how much they appreciate oh, it. Oh, I love yes. that. <laughs> um, so you can buy that anywhere that you buy books. Um, and you can also buy it on audiobook or Kindle or however you want to do it. So um, if you want to learn more about this kind of thing in body neutrality, that's where you can do it. So thank you for listening, everyone. And I will catch you next week.